Hey everybody, Larry Powell here, your host for Studio HFL. And what follows today is an interview with Rex Richardson. This was a live interview done February 23rd, 2021. And before we get to Rex's interview, just a reminder that uh, you can sponsor this podcast. You can be a, a part of the Studio HFL community by going to patreon.com slash studio HFL. And for as little as $3 a month, you can become a supporter. And there are four tiers for you can for you to choose from, and uh, if you'd consider that, I would be much appreciative. Uh, also, I'd appreciate if you'd go to Apple Podcast, leave a star rating and a review. If you haven't yet subscribed to the newsletter, uh, you can do that at studiohfl.com. And of course, continue to follow us, continue to follow me on social media at Studio HFL, both on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, of course. Uh, Interviews are available. In fact, this interview is available on the YouTube channel. The video portion is available there. And uh, yeah, I hope you enjoyed this interview. This was uh, live. We kind of I had to trim away just a little bit of the opening. We had some technical difficulties, but we are going to kind of slide seamlessly, as it were, into this interview with Rex. Hope you enjoy. Here we go. I think it's funny because in, in the gym, I go every day and I... I have shirts and most of them are just trumpet shirts because they're things I've gotten for festivals. You know, you play a festival, something you get a free shirt. And so these guys must be like, this guy must be the biggest <laughs> trumpet dork in the world. <laughs> I'm like, well, I kind of am, but I, right. if, if it helps, I didn't actually purchase most of these. Uh, shirts. <laughs> uh, we're all, we're all, I mean, you know, how many mouthpieces, how many mutes, how many trumpets? I mean, you are just like everybody else, every other one of us, right? We're all trumpet nerds, trumpet dorks, trumpet geeks, right? One way or another, indeed, yes. And one way or another. Or or how many file cabinets of music, right? right? How, how much have we amassed over the years that we don't want our spouse to find out about, right? I mean, <laughs> oh, yeah. oh, no, and I think Jenny might be watching this, too, so I might be in trouble there. See, well, but, starting to get rid of an old mouthpiece stash, man, like a few years ago, <laughs> and all of a sudden we start seeing some of these old prototype cabs from Pickett showing up like on eBay or something. And those cabs are like, what What happened? And it, was, it took me a moment to realize what must have happened. I didn't even know they were in there. So, yeah, it's dangerous to get rid of old stuff. Wait, wait, so at least she didn't pitch them, right? So she, she put them on eBay. Yeah, I, I, you know what? I don't think she did. She might have just given them away. And then that person put them on eBay. She just wanted to get them out of the house. So we <laughs> we didn't really benefit from it other than making the house a little more to her liking in yeah. terms of the, uh, yeah. you know, what's in the house. So yeah. you know, what can you do? So you still haven't found the Holy Grail mouthpiece, right? Um, no, I've, I have to say I'm I'm a bit... I'm not as informed about equipment as many trumpet players are. I've kind of uh, always been fairly nuts and bolts. For most of my life, I've played something in the range of a one and a half C. And that's kind of what I do now. So I, I had with, with Pickett Brass, I had the, the, the Omni, you know, they came up with that name because it was sort of, you know, you can use it in different styles. And that was about a three B. And at a certain point, I, I was listening to a recording, um, actually from, there you are. I was listening to a recording from uh, the last album of actually The Plogue. And when I did it kind of live in the room with the, with the brass band in the hall, and I was like, there's something about the sound I didn't really like. And I I know it wasn't the, you know, the craftsmanship in the mouthpiece. It was more just the design. And something told me going back to a little bit wider diameter and a little more of a C cup might be the ticket. So far, I've been really happy with this one. So this the Omni 2. It's it's very close to, you know, a Bach artist in one and a half C, but Pickett has kind of done his, put his, his magic into it. And yeah, I love it. I mean, I, I guess it's as close to a Holy Grail as it could be <laughs> for me, because there aren't that many things I try to do on the trumpet compared to some people like, I can't play as high as you, so I don't try. Man. Oh, no, 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 no. That's, that's not true. That, that's not true. I've, I've heard you uh, uh, hang out way, like, I don't know, four octaves above me at least on some things. <laughs> <laughs> so, hey, you know what? This, uh, this is a good time. You know, I use this, uh, this picture. I, do you remember where this was? Yeah, that was yeah. at the University of Indianapolis. With yeah, that's, Doc. that's when you and I met, and we were playing uh, Kevin McKee's Under Western Skies. That's right. right. That's right. Great and, piece. um, 
you know, I, I love that picture, you know, mainly because I'm in it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I love that picture because it's proof that I get to stand next to greatness. Oh, you know, shut up. <laughs> no, well, I'm, I'm serious. You know, yeah. I, you know, you could, you could think I'm being sarcastic or, or on that, but I'm not, I, you know, I love that. Uh, just the, the chance to share the stage, especially the last few years, you know, to get to know so many great players and share the stage with, with everybody and to realize that, Everybody's so welcoming, right? And and what what blew me away about that weekend, that conference here in Indianapolis was, yes, it was you and Doc, uh, but you invited me. You said this, uh, it was the Louis Armstrong. It was Jim Stevenson's arrangement of, uh, was it Louis Armstrong tribute? Right. And yeah. it finishes with uh, Saints. And you said, hey, why don't you join me uh, when I get to that part, come on stage? And I'm like, yeah, man. You know, I think I I had played this a year or two before, so I, I kind of remembered and I knew what key yeah. we were in. And uh, so I was already jacked to do that. And then at intermission, you turned to Doc and you said, hey, Doc, you join us too. And I mean, I I, you, I didn't even need to play at that point. I could have just walked down on stage with you guys. But, you know, that was, and I should have put a picture up of that, but that was truly one of the most uh, memorable times I've ever been on stage and it's just the the whole thing you know your your master class that weekend but you know it was also it's like the first time I met Ronnie Rom it's like you look up to these people but you realize man these are just great human beings mm. you know and you love listening to him play I love listening to you play but it's like you were as as much if not more fun to just hang with oh, you know thank you, thank you man and, that's that's fairly kind of you really kind well of you. You know, and and again, that's why I'm getting such a kick out of doing these interviews, right? Is because it's just like, man, it's a hang. It's I got to figure out how to make the H, the hang, hang. Uh, I don't know what the FL is going to be on that. Maybe some, not something we can say out loud, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> but we'll we'll figure that part out. But hang uh, full of love. Hang full. Oh, dude, that's it right there. Right, hang yeah, full yeah, of love. Might, you might have to throw an O in there. H fall, but but you know, it, it's still. Do it. It may not need it, just it's a little, yeah. you know, yeah. um, article after all. So, but it, it's true that it's just a, a big fellowship, isn't it? Yeah. And I think that's something all of us remember being students, you know, where we, you know, we see people like Doc and and Ron and and and, and Vizzuti and Bergeron. All, 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 I mean, the list goes on, you know. And and what's amazing to realize is most of these cats are just. They're just good people, man. They love they love music and they love the trumpet and they love being with other trumpet players. And most of them are not, you know, there's there's no bad vibe and there's no jaded kind of thing. They and you know, as you and I know, I mean, none of us feels great all the time. None of us is really like, oh yeah, I really want to, you know, talk to people after this concert, especially if you feel like, wow, this wasn't my best <laughs> show, you know, and you know, but it but it's like what I started to see is all those folks, they always knew that what was most important is, is, is like how you interface with people. I mean, one of the things that really struck me um, was with Alan Vizzuti. This, this would have been, I can't remember what ITG it was, but it was a number of years ago. And he, he did a recital and it was, you know, just slamming good. We're all blown away, of course. But he comes backstage and Alan, of course, he's never impressed with himself. So he's just very, very quiet. He's like, oh. Thank you. There's people saying nice things. All these heavy trumpet cats are there, you know, and, and all of a sudden a little kid walks up holding the trumpet. He must have been eight years old or something. And Alan's attention went boom. It, all of a sudden it was all about the kid. All these important trumpet players didn't really matter so much then. Um, it was really all about uh, this little kid with the trumpet who wanted Alan's autograph or something and, and he gave him his full attention. And I was like, man, that's that's the real stuff right there. That's that's you know this is a this is a kind of person I want to be like. You know, I want to aspire to be like Alan Mazzuti and 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 the list goes on. I mean, most of the people you run into in this business are like that, which is amazing. It's amazing to realize, you know. You know, the older I get, and you know, I think we all at some point probably fit that stereotype of the egotistical trumpet player, right? You know, where our our own ego is too big for whatever room we're in, right? Okay. I mean, and, and then we graduate high school and we realize. <laughs> but you know, you know, I think with with age and experience comes this realization that we're supposed to share this, right? What what 
we get the yeah. opportunity to do is we're supposed to share whether we teach or perform, right? And we're supposed to connect. And, you know, especially these days, uh, boy, that, that's as important as ever, right? For us to, to really just share what we can do, what we know. Um, right. And, right. you know, I, so many performances where, you know, I've been in the audience and moved and I'm thinking, because when you're on the other side of that horn, right, you realize the importance of it. And so then when you do get to stand on stage, you realize I got a responsibility, right, to, to move these people out there. Yes. And, and that's such a great point, because I think it's something I, I was just talking with this about, uh, about this with a student the other day, where the student sometimes, especially younger players, they, they don't see a connection between what they hear in a moment like that and what they can do, you know, so they might hear poke on or watch a video of Maurice Andre or some great player and just be like, oh, man, this is so beautiful. And, and then they get on stage and like, oh, I don't want to make a mistake, you know, and then I'm like, no, 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 that's not, that's not your mindset, which you want to connect with. I mean, yeah, we get in the practice room and we work on precision and, and accuracy and uh, facility and all, all these things that contribute to our you know, our attempt to become a great player. But when you get on stage, what you need to remember is that experience you had. So because you want to evoke that in, in the listener, something similar, you know, so a lot, what I always try to do is when I'm on stage, a big part of my, where my head is, is what would I want to hear in the back of the room? If I was in the room right now, you know, what, what would I want to hear? And so that's what I'm, I'm trying to project and because I know what I would think is, oh, it's, it's beautiful and it's, it's moving. I'm really having an experience. It's uplifting. Um, it's not going to be the same for everyone, of course, but all we can do is start with our own experience. And chances are, if, if you can get into that zone and do that successfully, a lot of people are going to have a good experience and, and you essentially fulfilled what the, the mission is, which is to, to share something beautiful ultimately, right? I mean, that's, all the trumpet chops and jokes and everything aside, that's, that's really what it's all about. And when, when we can get in that frame of mind and deliver that, it makes everything else so much easier. It alleviates anxiety. It, it takes us out of the sort of stress of our everyday lives. And, and it just puts us in this order. It kind of reminds us why we wanted to be musicians in the first place. A lot of it started with having an experience like that. You know, um, I remember watching... Tim Morris and Andre Coma, the Boston Pops, watching them play uh, on TV when I was like 13, you know, and, and just being transfixed and looking at my trumpet. And I was also confused. They were playing C trumpets. I was like, there's something wrong with my trumpet. <laughs> well, is this a toy? It doesn't look like theirs, you know. And, all right. But, but uh, it all kind of fed that fascination and curiosity and, and set the stage for me, really wanted to try to, to learn the instrument, you know. You know, uh, the first time I heard you live was with Rhythm and Brass, you know, mid-90s. And we've talked about this in, in other interviews. But, um, you know, you and Whiff, I mean, the whole gang, you know, Villa Rubia, who else? I don't know when to leave anybody out now. Shuhan. Alex Shuhan on the horn and piano and David Gluck on the um, on percussion and sometimes piano. And he was kind of the main composer arranger. And then Tom Brantley on, on trombone. Yeah. And, you know, the, the entire group brought it, you know, so that was my first experience with you. And then to see and stand with you on stage and experience that same thing, you know, so live experience, it's, you might think it's easier to make that connection, right, that, that you're talking about, and, and to move people. But, you know, going back to the CD you referenced a few minutes ago with a plug on there, you know, I have to tell you, um, you know how we used to say, I wore that vinyl out, right? I, I've kind of worn that CD out because oh, there's some nice. absolutely, well, it, that particular piece, you know, and, and it's, I have to say, it's not just your playing, but the ensemble behind you was oh. smoking. Yeah, right? the brassman is such a Florida, and the piece is so great. I mean, Tony is another one of those, he's just a total unassuming genius, you know. <laughs> but, you, you mean, know, Tony Plog, and he just kind of talks like this, and he's real, oh, make some jokes, and and you're like, I forget that I'm dealing with one of the baddest cats ever because he's so unassuming. And But yeah, it's an amazing little piece, man. It's a beautiful little concerto. I love that piece. But even on the recording, you were able to make that connection, right? I mean, you're still able to move people, you know? And I think 
you know, I'm sitting here now thinking, how is that possible that we can have that same connection with a live performance as we can with a recording? It doesn't always happen that way, right? Yeah, and I think I, I think a lot of it has to do with the there's there's got to be certain chemistry in the recording process, you know, and and that that whole album was so weird in so so many ways because each piece was a completely different recording scenario. You know, one was recorded in Florida, one piece was recorded in Arizona, one piece was recorded in England, the other was recorded in Tokyo. And then the solo parts, <laughs> you know, some of them were recorded in Richmond, Virginia. One of them was recorded live in Florida. And the worst scenario was half of two thirds of one was done in England, yet the rest of it was done in the studio just because of running out of time. Those guys are putting together like four or five concertos on that album in a weekend. Wow. And ended up being, uh, that was kind of the new one that none of us really knew. And, and it ended up being a bit overambitious. But, but anyway, the, the chemistry that's there is, is a key. And, and always to some degree in the recording, some, some portion of that is manufactured. You know, in a live performance, you get what you get. And it's like, you put it out there and you get all the, all, all the blemishes and all the things that are perfect, which to me are part of what makes it absolutely really cool and honest to listen to, you know, in the recording, you're, you're going to come up with something that's no perfect, but somehow, no matter what the circumstance, you're trying to bring that same energy and commitment. I think for the plogue, what made it easy was or relatively easy to find that was really the, the band and Chad Shoop and conducting those guys. Um, and they, they, they have a great spirit. It's one of those, they're, they're very much in the tradition of, I think, the great uh, British brass bands where they, they, they develop this, this character, this personality, and they play together um, as, in a, in a really, with a really kind of special energy. And those guys brought that same energy, and so did Chad at the podium. So it felt, it felt so good to play with them. And I think that's why even after, you know, chopping together different takes and, you know, uh, putting it all together, it, it still had a nice chemistry, you know. Uh, are you familiar with uh, uh, Remission, that Ryan Anthony's CD? Have you listened to that? Yes. So it starts. Uh, well, I can't remember the name of the first. Oh, I think Remission is the first, the first piece I on there. But then, the first, right? yeah. but then the Lieberman Concerto, that's on there. the The playing on that is absolutely spectacular. And you know, of course, there there's so much. There's so much of a deeper meaning to that recording, I think, because of, well, because of Ryan, right? And the, and the circumstances surrounding, you know, so I think even the listener is more invested in, in this album than maybe, you know, it's not a casual, it's not a casual listening. But uh, just thinking about the effect of, of even that, that recorded performance still is so powerful, so moving. You know, and I and I guess, you know, go back to the first time I would come home from school and put the records on, right? And it was the Arthur Fiedler and the Boston Pops, you know, and uh, great recordings, right? The first time I heard Al Hurt was on one of those recordings, you know, blown away. So, you know, I guess the thinking back now, it's like, yeah, man, I was moved from the very beginning. I didn't realize it, but, you know, Hearing yeah. Al Hurt, now I realize who he is. All these many years later, it's like, well, it, no wonder I was moved, right? I mean, yeah. What a beast. I know. And, and speaking of Ryan, I mean, that one of the things about, I mean, there's so many amazing qualities to his playing, but I, I, you know, heard him and played with him when he would, felt great and when he felt terrible. And the one thing that never changed because there's some, you know, it was impossible given what he was going through at times, you know, to have his best consistency all the time. <laughs> None of us really does, even when we're not going through what he did. You know what I mean? It's like, it's the trumpet. So it, it, right. it, as Dizzy said, you know, sometimes the trumpet wins and it's one of those days. But, but Ryan always, man, he never held back. There was always this kind of, um, this just, plunge right over the cliff kind of approach to, to, to sharing the song. It was always, it was always a singing quality. So that was something that um, just always blew me away about his playing. No matter what he was doing, if he was sitting behind, you know, he, he would play soprano cornet in the brass battle, battle Creek on occasion, or, or just one of the other cornet parts and, or um, hearing him as a soloist or, 
standing next to him in so many cases. It was always the same, man. It was like you just walk away going, that was incredible. That, that was that was a, a, a yet another unforgettable experience, you know. Right. But but it is true. And, and, and then, he, of course, he brought that to his recordings, too. I mean, it's the same it's the same quality. And when I was getting to do my, um, my classical, I mean, I've done, I guess, a number of you know, quote, unquote, classical recordings, but the, the real one, you know, with the, the Telemann, Albanoni and Haydn and all that stuff, I was checking out his version of the Albanoni that he did with Gary Beard, the organ. Cause I, I knew, you know, Maurice Andre and these other recordings I love, but I knew I had to get Ryan's approach in my head and draw upon that energy and try to reproduce some element of that if it, if it was going to sound good, you know. And so yeah, miss miss that guy, man. That's um, that's that's another story altogether, isn't it? Right, uh, and yeah, um, well, yeah, it's hard to believe June what June twenty third. I think it it's going to stick in my head just like everybody else. But yeah. um, you know, uh, think back if you can, that first experience where you're like, you know, whether it's as a pro or not, where you're like, holy crap, I got to do this. I, I got to keep doing this. I mean, do, do you recall when that, when that happened? Um, I, I remember the, the period. It was, it was as I just turned 14. So I was kind of like, I think finishing my, eighth grade year going into freshman year or something. And at the time, you know, my father was in the Coast Guard back then. We were stationed mm -hmm. in Hawaii for a bit. And so I remember uh, being on campus, checking out the University of Hawaii. And I don't know what it was about that particular experience. I don't remember, but I, I remember being there and deciding that I wanted to be a music major. And this is before I even really started to practice and really started to learn the trumpet in any kind of serious fashion. But Something clicked for me. It might have had something to do with the exposure to the Boston pop stuff and, and starting to raid my mom and dad's record cabinet. <coughs> excuse me, with um, some of the old big band recordings and mm -hmm. you know checking out Herb Albert and the Tijuana Brass and all this uh, music from that period. You know, something something just really pulled me in. And then from there, um, this was still in Hawaii. It was it just started. You know, it's when I just started buying records. And of course, like you, I'm sure at the time it was, it was vinyl. Uh, Winston's first recordings were coming out and I was discovering more Sandre and Rafael Mendez. And uh, my first Miles Davis album, it's funny. I, I got one of probably his lesser known albums. And at first I didn't know what to make of it. It's called Star People. And it, it was from like 1982, I think it came mm -hmm. out. And he was definitely into this post- kind of funk phase going on and um marcus miller's on it and, and john schofield and mike stern and and man it's since become maybe my favorite miles davis record wow. but at first i was like i, I don't know what this is because miles was like doing stuff he's playing keep organ and trumpet at the same time he's going spit spit bird i'm going i'm 13 years old going <laughs> Well, I don't know what to make of this, you know, and and then I heard Winston. I was like, ah, oh, this sounds like trumpet playing to me. Right, right. <laughs> but years later, when I rediscovered Star People and put it back on the record player, it's like, oh my god, this is this is so killing you. Know? So all that it was all just a process of sometimes random discovery like that. Because after that, I started finding Miles, you know, better known recordings, and and really started to, to plunge in that. And then Freddie Hubbard and even Woody Shaw was one of my first purchases uh, Master of the Art, which came out that year, I think back in 1982. And since they're one of my favorite jazz records at all time, and, and likewise at the time, I didn't really know what to make of it, you know? <laughs> so it's a, it's a funny process. It was all around then, I think, at some point, and for some reason I'm tying it to that visit to the University of Hawaii, that campus yeah. where I decided I want to be a music major. And, and uh, soon thereafter, I figured out what, what I was in for in terms of a the trouble I've gotten myself into. So, <laughs> you know, uh, I, I'm thinking back, and uh, like a lot of people, um, I, I went through the Maynard phase, right? I mean, that's really uh, Al Hurt was the first trumpet player I ever heard, and uh, you talked about uh, Herb Alpert and T1 of Brass. I remember, you know, and, and you know, as cheesy as that music sounds now, it's still really 
you don't turn it off, do you? <laughs> right. right? You still there's listen a, all the way through. It's fun. You there's know? a reason why her became, I think, maybe the richest trumpet player of all time, you know, being the A and a and records after all. Well, but talk yeah. about uh, being a philanthropist, giving back too, right? I mean, yeah, what, that, what a great example of, of sharing. And, and so, you know, thinking about that Maynard phase, it's like, you know, I got so excited about trumpet because, you know, and I had a jet tone mouthpiece, man, and I was going to rule the world on, <laughs> you know, too, yeah. and I sucked on that. I mean, I, it was, it was horrible, you know, but it, whatever gateway, right? However we get into discovering other players, as long as we get there, right? So, I mean, I still have a great appreciation for Maynard, but, you know, once I got to college and started trading albums, it's like, that's when I found out who Doc Severinsen was. That's when I started to hear about all these other players. And it's like, oh man, you got to check this guy out. got to check this guy out, you know? And I mean, of course it's never ending. You know, I mean, you're still checking out the old guys, but I mean, now there's a lot of great artists coming out. In fact, I've got a, a student at UND who is a big fan of Christian Scott. I don't know if that's a name uh, yeah. you're familiar I with. I know Christian. He was, he was a young guy in New Orleans when I was down there doing my, in Baton Rouge, doing grad work. Mm-hmm. He was just kind of coming up on the scene. He was only like 14 or something and playing in the clubs and killing it. And yeah, he's, he's great. What a great and amazingly creative artist. Yeah. You know, yeah. So it's like, are are uh, available the people available to us to listen to is never going to stop, right? You know, and people listen to you. I listen to you, right? But you listen you're to the one. you're the one. Thank you, Larry. For, uh, but you're yeah, I'm the one. But you know, you're still listening to people. It's like you. It's totally. and you said something earlier that I, I I'm going to go back and excerpt from this because it's something I think all of us try to tell our students how important it is. Oh, you're talking about the Albanoni, trying to copy Ryan's sound for the Albanoni, right? It's like, how do you know what you're supposed to, you want to sound like unless you know what it is you want to sound like, right? You have to listen. You can't manufacture yeah. a sound from nothing, right? I mean, it's you can, but what's it going to mean, right? I think sometimes people get, people mis, misunderstand the steps in the process because the ultimate goal for any serious artist, whether you're a musician or a painter or act or whatever, you, you, you find your own voice, so to speak, you know. But I think sometimes with musicians, they, they don't understand what, how that occurs. It occurs really through absorbing the language of the music that, you, that you're studying. And this is through absorbing very specific elements of other players playing. Eventually, once you've done enough of this, and it takes years, you know, it's filtered through your own musical personality. And there's your own voice and it, and it's not, you know, not everyone's going to be a Clifford Brown or, a, or, a, you know, or Woody Shaw or someone who's this, this, this sort of stunning innovator, but that's, that's okay. That's not, it's okay. It's like what, what we all need to kind of aim for is like, what's my own kind of personal niche in this business? You know, am, am I able to make music? Am I, am I in, enjoying myself? And, and do I feel good about what I'm doing? I mean, I think that's, that's really, if we can answer all those cool questions with a positive answer, then we're, we're in the right place, you know, but that I, th- I think a lot of students misunderstand that. They're like, Oh, you know, I got to do my own thing. I'm like, well, your own thing's not so hip yet, man. You know, and, well, and- I always try to equate it to, there's a reason that we learn functional harmony, right? I mean, you got to understand the basics. You got to understand where the box is. If you want to either, uh, move the box edges or completely get out of it, right? But you've got to understand the basics. So, yeah, you've got to be able to mimic the great players, whether it's Maurice Andre or Louis Armstrong or Clifford Brown or you name it, right? That's a great starting place. You know, I don't want to sound like so-and-so. Well, you know what? You're not going to. You As hard <laughs> as you try, you're not going to. Right. Like Bria Stoneberg, you know, a lot of people say she sounds like Louis Armstrong. I think, no, she doesn't. She sounds like Bria Stoneberg with a great appreciation for Louis Armstrong, right? I mean, I yeah. love her sound, right? Yeah, and the way she beautiful. sings too is just it's spectacular. It's beautiful. And it's, and it's, I think, wholly hers. You know, the fact that he's a big influence. So what? You know what I mean? I, I remember someone, when I was playing at the Iridium years ago with Joe Henderson, I'm playing one night and someone important with it was there that I was kind of hoping to impress. And my friend was there with this person, and this, I think this is a big wig at Jazz at Lincoln Center or something. Mm. 
And, and afterwards, I'm like, man, what, do you like it? And he says, ah, he says, you sound like Freddie Hubbard. Like, dismiss him. I was like, really? That's awesome. <laughs> right? Can I get that in writing? <laughs> well, it's funny because I, I, I think he probably meant to, to be the dismissive derivative. I was like, I, I don't care, man. I was like, you know, Freddie, and I know Freddie. That may be what you what what you you fix on, and and um, I've I spent so much time trying to absorb his language as, as countless trumpet players have done because there's, what he does is so appealing, you know. So, but I, I wasn't insulted by that at all. You know what I mean? And and I get sometimes someone else might revert to some player that they hear in my playing, and all I can say is, "Wow, that's, that's great." The study I've done is actually gotten <laughs> been successful enough that that element is at least coming up in my coming out in my playing. And yeah. so I, I don't think people should be worried about that. I think the mistake they make now, if if all you did was study Miles Davis, or all you did is study Louis Armstrong, and all you do is try to play like them, yeah, you're gonna just kind of sound like a bad. Miles Davis or Bad Lewis Armstrong, but most, the vast majority of people do, don't do anything like that. You know, you're listening to both Lewis and Miles and you're listening to countless other artists and not just trumpet players, obviously too. Like in my case, I listen probably more to saxophonists than I do the trumpet players and, and take their vocabulary. But we're all listening to different artists and we're listening to different elements of the craft of each artist. And between that and our own musical personalities, it's inevitable that there's we're going to have a personal take on the music. That's kind of unavoidable. So it's not something to force. It's something just to let unfold while allowing yourself to just immerse in yourself in, in whatever musical form you're trying to, to master. You know. Uh, okay, so let's talk about mastering form or mastering patterns or flexibilities, right? I mean, you've kind of been uh, one of the many during this pandemic who've gone on, you know, and demonstrated uh, how to play this lick or this flexibility, and, and w which is just sick. <laughs> I mean, it is ridiculous watching you guys. I, I have, I, I will not put myself out there like that. So bravo to you guys who are brave enough to put yourself out there. But, you know, I mean, that in itself, going back to this whole idea of sharing, giving back, I mean, what a great thing to do. Um, and, you know, that drove you, uh, I'm trying to turn this big segue into 100 days of practice, right? Oh. I mean, right, so something came out of all this, right? All this, it's like, you know, you're, what was that where you're kind of like, hey, you know what? I think I'm going to do this. I think I'm going to write 100 days of practice. Yeah, and it started with different phases. I mean, the, probably the initial uh, seed being planted that was in, when I visited Switzerland and Wow, almost exactly a year ago, just over a year ago. That's kind of crazy. But I was there uh, playing with a uh, brass band, um, Malaysian brass band, and not far from Geneva. It's a beautiful part of the world, one of my very favorite parts of the world. Like the, there are vineyards all over the slopes there, and everyone makes their own wine. It's amazing. It's just like kind of heaven for me, you know. But uh, I met with uh, uh, Jerry Mathez, who had recently kind of taken over. BIM, editions BIM um, mm -hmm. publishers there. And we, we met, we had dinner, we were already dealing with, um, he, he was coming to the concert because I was playing the Plogue um, with the brass band, as well as uh, Vizzuti's Concerto Three World Wind. So those are the two things I was playing. So he, he came to that and we, we talked about some other projects, you know, and he was interested in me maybe contributing some kind of a book if he thought I I had that in me. And so I sent him some other stuff I'd done, some articles and and the chapter from um, the Yamaha Carl Fisher book that came out a few years ago where mm -hmm. a few different Yamaha artists you know, put some stuff together. And then when the, you know, the shutdown started, you know, this 100 days of practice hashtag started obviously. And at first I was kind of doing more of what everyone else is doing, just putting together really short video in my case very primitive because I had no chops whatsoever. I didn't know how to edit. I didn't even know really how to stop, you know, cut up the beginning of me pushing the button and, <laughs> and, and stopping at the video, all that stuff, you know, and, and I started to gain some skill. And then I started saying, maybe I can make something a little more involved, you know, instead of a minute of me kind of playing through something and a few sentences about it, let me make some little pedagogical videos and as these were unfolding and I was staying in touch with 
um, uh, Jerry Mathez, at some point, you know, he says, why don't you do a book? We had, we had a video meeting and he says, why don't you do a book on that topic? And that's really what started the ball rolling. So a few minutes later, we kind of, you know, got our things together and got the contract signed. And now, now it's underway. Now I'm, oh. I'm in the midst of writing it. So do you have a, an end date? Yeah, not an end date, a, a deadline that you're shooting for? Well, the main thing I'm focused on is when I'd like it to be in people's hands. And I'm hoping fairly quickly, like by this summer, I want it to be, you know, reach, distributed to folks. I'm hoping uh, some people might find it useful for their, their studio teaching in the fall. One thing that's convenient about 100 days is it's about the productive period of a semester, isn't it, in, in the U.S. anyway? I hadn't even thought start, about that. Yeah, I hadn't either until I was looking at it. I was like, well, first week of September or so, you know, obviously it went as a little bit of a different start, but but they're all we're all talk, talking about 14, 15 weeks or so of, of work. And um, first in my case, first week of December to the first week of December is about 100 days. So I'm, I started conceiving it as sort of a semester's worth of work and trying to give a lot of structure there, but also a lot of flexibility so people can find it adaptable to their, to their own needs. So that's, that's what I'm uh, trying to work on at this point. I, I'm thinking, you know, if that book were out and I had it at the beginning of the pandemic, I'd probably be on, only on about day 17 right now, right? <laughs> With as little practice as <laughs> is, is, it's gotten better, right? You know, it's gotten better. Um, yeah, you know, uh, it's funny you mentioned uh, getting in people's hands. It's like I wasn't trying to promote this, but Roger will appreciate this, right? This uh, duet book that he and uh, Josh uh, Rizaka put out, The Versatile Trumpeter. Are you familiar oh. with that? You know, no, actually, I don't, I don't know that. It's a great resource, man. It's it's uh, really well-written duets that come with the backing track and demos, you know, Roger and, and Josh playing on this stuff. But, you know, is it's... It, is it Roger Ingram? Yeah. Oh, very cool, man. Yeah, no, it's I, I brilliant. Could, I couldn't see it because it was a reflection oh, on the... Sorry about that. But yeah, I'll, I'll send you a link to that. But, you know, the, the idea is just that more resources, right? I mean, Arbenz is great, but, you know, we have to bring a relevance to things, right? And I think that's what you're doing is is you're giving people something else to, to grab onto, which it, it's like Scott Belk's book, right? I mean, there's a billion way to do flexibilities. He makes it kind of fun and interesting, right? Yeah, and, between the hilarious titles. Yeah, you could fact, buy the book for the titles alone. <laughs> I know, it's just a comedy act, you know? And then, but as you go through, uh, what struck me about that book is that the way we encounter flexibility challenges in repertoire, in etudes and concertos and sonatas and such, mm-hmm. his exercises seem to address that more directly than some of the straight up lip slur exercises that I, yeah. I grew up playing. So I thought that's something, you know, unique and, and, and really helpful, really cool about that book. So let me run this by you. I was thinking about this recently. You know, orchestra auditions, right? You've got your standard list. You got to play Pines. You got to play the first movement. You got to play the offstage solo. You got to play Carmen Prelude. You got to play uh, Pictures. You got to do all this in Mahler Five. And you're thinking, okay, as a working trumpet player in a regional orchestra, when are you ever going to play a Mahler Symphony? Maybe, right? So I'm thinking, the, the real focus for a lot of people ought to be a lot of John Williams repertoire, a lot of uh, James Stevenson stuff. That's that's getting played in more regional orchestras. I mean, I know it's getting played in the top orchestras too, but you know, it's like, uh, why are we spending so much time playing Petrushka? How many of us are actually ever going to get a chance? Okay, I've played it a few times, but how many ever are going to get a chance to play Petrushka? Why don't we put stuff out there that that, <laughs> what's the best way to say this? Uh, you know, that the the real guy like me is really going to get to play in a regional orchestra. You know, do, yeah. do you see what I'm saying? It's, why, why waste my time pray, playing Pines and working on Petrushka and all that stuff when I really need to focus on how to play, uh, you know, the Patriot, you know, John Williams score. That's a, that's a tough score to play all the way through. Right. Yeah, uh, for you sure. Know, and, you know, all these other things, it's like, yeah, that's where you got to build your chops up. You know, so I'm just thinking maybe that's my thing is to put together a resource, right, that focuses on on that. Yeah, because I think all the orchestras are playing that kind of repertoire. You know what I mean? There's mm. they're all dealing with, uh, you know, film score features or even video game 
concerts playing. There's all kinds of creative music being written in that scene. Now, I think, you know, the justifications for still dealing with the old excerpts is that we know that some of them, they really tax particular skill sets. You know what I mean? Like, is there anything that's that much harder than Petrushka, really, that, that we're going to play frequently? I mean, it's so easy. Yeah, Rafael Piano Concerto. <laughs> that, well, that's another one. <laughs> right. Same, yeah. same category, something that, right. that um, you know, we're going to have those, those kind of pieces that right. um, we might not get a lot of chance to play them. But I do think the justification for playing them is that you build skill by learning them. If you can nail Petrushka consistently, man, you can play the trumpet. Yeah. I'll just put it that way. You know what I mean? Because I've heard so many people and, and I mean, so many people scuff it, you know, and so many students in, in a master class or an audition just not play it very well. So I think um, those skills transfer, you know what I mean? And that's, that's one of the things I think about in the book too, because there are different approaches to building skill. One can be very, repertoire focused where you're like, I'm going to learn what I need to do by, by finding the pieces that tax that. But I'm not sure. I'm not sure it works away the same way for different instruments. Like I, I get the feeling that might be more effective for piano say in terms of like, as you're dealing with these big war horse pieces, you're kind of encountering all, all the possible, you know, technical challenges you might face. But I've always, I've always kind of, gravitated towards Vince DiMartino's attitude. He, he really seemed to like the idea of like finding exercise that train your chops so that when the repertoire shows up in front of you, it's not that hard. You've already got the ability to navigate what the, what the skills are. But I do think, um, you know, basing that on the particular challenge in the repertoire is, is, is very important. Um, it's even the kind of thing, well, one of the things I've put in this book that some people might find a little bit of a eyebrow raising thing is, is a fair amount of improvisation and not, and not on the jazz side, this idea that every day you can improvise for a few minutes and the different prompts and events we get into, like take, take a lick from the Hummel, mess around with it. Right. See what you can come up with, you know, and one of the things that there, there's so many things you achieve by that one is of course you're exercising a kind of a creative part of your mind that you don't always, if you're just, trying to read something and play something that that's down on paper. And, um, and, and I think that directly influences the way we interpret music that's written down on paper. The other thing is I, is I think you start solving technical problems when you relax with it that way you start, you know, you find the licks that are tough in these concertos, start messing around with them, you know, play them in different keys, create a little cadenza out of them. And some of these things you might actually transfer directly to the, uh, concert stage, like improvising a cadenza, for example, which I always try to do, regardless of the period of the instrument, mm-hmm. uh, of the piece rather, and and other things may just be a, a practice room thing, something that builds your skill, you know. But I think it all, it all com- combined. I think what I'm trying to get to through in this book is this idea of being as creative and at the same time as disciplined as possible. This, you know, the whole yin and yang concept involves, you know we have to remember that it's not just about the conflict of order and chaos or something. It's also what, 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 what it's supposed to be about is finding that line. You, you, if you, if you walk right on that line between the two, that that's usually where you find the most success because we need both. We need, you know, we need freedom and we need discipline. So that what I'm trying to espouse in the book is to be as creative and thoughtful in how you put together your routine as possible, but also be very disciplined in applying your own rules. You know, so if you don't like the rules, change them, but stick with what you've decided to do. Right. Because I think it comes down to two things. Ultimately, when you've you, when successful practicing is very broadly speaking, A, knowing what to do, or at least thinking you know what to do, and B, doing it. Both seem very easy, especially the second part, but it's not so simple, is it? You know, how often do we find ourselves like, oh, man, I'm. I knew I was going to do this or I, or even like I needed to take a day off because mm-hmm. I'm shocked, but I, I just, I wanted to play. And it's like, oh, okay, now I need to take another day off or that's maybe less rare than not being able to do the work we need to, we know we need to, 
but it, it all comes down to this idea of having a clear plan and, and actually executing the plan. And then you make adjustments. All right. I didn't like this about the plan. Cool. We're going to win and change it. I think all too often, a lot of younger players, especially just, there's a little bit of kind of, there's a little too much of the chaos, you know, and, and maybe in fewer players, there's maybe too much of the order. They, they get the blinders on. I'm playing what I'm supposed to do. And it's so dull. I stopped listening to myself half an hour ago. But I'm still going through it. And that's useless as well. It's probably more useless than the chaotic practice where you might at least be having fun and you might be learning something. You know, it, it's <laughs> funny. Uh, I'm reading this book by uh, Suzuki, Sinichi Suzuki. Oh. Uh, nurtured by love. And uh, he actually talks about this, you know, tonalization is what violinists do, you know, or string players do when they when they first start, it's to find their sound. It's warming up. And I'm thinking, why don't if if we trumpet players took this approach, instead of thinking of it as warming up or going through routine, if we were like, I'm going to find my sound for today. Right? I mean, yeah, then then it's like you're really focused on what's coming out of the horn. You're not just blindly or or you know being a robot going through the Adam routine or Chickowitz or whatever it is, you know. And I've done all those. It, it's just, but it, what do you? That's, I think that's a great way to think about it. I'm going to find my sound. Yeah, yeah. And, and it mirrors what I remember reading. Um, Hokan was talking about with his own warm-ups where he, he doesn't know what it's going to sound like when he starts playing. He says it sometimes it sounds like crap, which is hard to imagine Right. <laughs> in this case. But maybe to him, you know, he knows it's not quite right. And he, you know, he sits there until it, we're working on the same thing until it, until it works, you know. And I'm right. knowing him probably using James Stamps, you know, exercise, you know. And that reminds me of some, something else I've got in this book that's a key component is like the start of every routine there's a bit of mouthpiece buzzing, but from the perspective of ear training, not just warming mm -hmm. up your chops. Mm -hmm. So I'm instructing people, it's like, you know, play a concert B flat and don't do a test note. How many times you play that note? You know, because we tend to think of like, oh, there are people with perfect pitch and then there's the, the rest of us just, we, we have to do test notes. <laughs> like, no, man, you can develop a good sense of pitch. Yep. Even if it's not someone who's like, just like seeing a color or something instantly when you hear a pitch. You can develop a really good sense of pitch by expecting yourself to do it. So you start off playing the exercises, some of the mouth uh, James Stamp um, exercises, and then you start trying to start on different notes. So every day, first thing you do is try to hear that note and start on it. And afterwards, you can check to see how accurate you are. But I yeah. think this is something else that gets us engaged. We, we have no choice but to listen to what we're doing. It's not routine because we're not going, oh, okay, here's an elf. You know, it's like you really have to be in control of the process with the mind's ear, so to speak. That, mm -hmm. That's really what's in charge. Mm -hmm. yeah. Can I come study with you? I've asked you this before. And, you know, is it too late to come get my, my uh, well, if I did this uh, it, with everybody, it would be like my 14th or 15th bachelor's degree in something, right? So, no, it, this is great. You know, just <laughs> all this. Yeah. Okay. Uh, sorry. I'm all over the place, but I'm just thinking, you know, this is why that advertisement I put out there the other day, if, if the trumpet world were the big Lebowski, Rex would be <laughs> the dude, right? That's why I said that you're the dude, man. You are and and the dude abides, you know, man, I have to tell you, I love that character. I love Jeff Riches right? as the dude. <laughs> so funny. Every time I see the, the movie is kind of bizarre. You know, I think the Coen brothers really went, woo, you know, but he is so funny in that role. So when I saw that, I laughed. I laughed so hard. It's like, I, I find the dude to be quite an excellent role model for me too. To yeah. Inspired to actually. So uh, <laughs> yeah. thank you for that compliment. No, it, well, and, and I meant that, right? It, it's like somebody telling you you sound like Freddie Hubbard. It was, it was meant uh, truly as a compliment, right? Yeah, so. well, I don't think that guy meant it that way, but I took it that oh, way anyway. So. Yeah. <laughs> hey, um, I, I know you, you got to get on the road here in a couple minutes. Uh, let me wrap up a little bit before I do anything else, though. Uh, Rosemarie Klein uh, commented. I want to give a shout out to Rosemarie. She's a trumpet player here in Indianapolis. Uh, she says great podcast. But Rosemarie, it might be one of the most enthusiastic trumpeters and music supporters and she shows up and she plays uh, she shows up for performances as as an audience member she'll come to conferences i mean she is out there but what a great 
uh, spokesperson for you know music in the trumpet world. So Rosemary, mm -hmm. I, I appreciate that you're you know, you're checking into this stuff. I appreciate uh, that, and also that you show up to the conferences here in Indy, um, which we hopefully will have again at some point, right? Yes, I hope yeah. so, man. I hope so. so. Um, let, let me wrap up here. Let me uh, promote a couple of things coming up. Uh, of course, uh, the next live interview is going to be March 9th, and uh, that's with Ben Wright uh, from, uh, I think, one of the lesser known uh, symphonies. I <laughs> know, uh, is it Boston? Some right? random place in the Northeast. Some random place. Uh, and, and talk about somebody who's putting themselves out there. He put out a really great uh, tutorial on Petrushka uh, a week or two ago. It's just, it's, it's really good. Uh, so Ben and of course uh, Chop Saver Dan Gosling is helping uh, sponsor the March interviews. So thanks again to them for that. Um, actually, my interview with Tom Rolfs, principal of Boston, is coming out next week, uh, along oh, with cool. uh, with another uh, trombone player whose birthday is today, and that's Gene Watts. I know wow. Gene's not watching, but happy birthday, Gene! He's eighty-five, uh, I think. Is he really? Yeah. Wow. That's wow. what I said on Facebook. Maybe he put on that. I, I was really kind of shocked. I was like, really? Yeah. But maybe he was just messing around. But uh, yeah. I'm, I'm pretty sure. I hope I'm not putting out wrong. Yeah. Well, I don't know. There, but I, I saw the notification on Facebook and it said he was 85. So that's well, amazing. He's, he's 85 years young because I, even when I interviewed him, I'm like, you know, the, he it's, and it's the meditation that keeps him so centered and so, uh, so full of, of life. You know, I mean, 85, I would never put him that old, but maybe he's messing with this man. Maybe he's messing with I don't with know. Him. I could I be know. putting out uh, misinformation. <laughs> here, so there's just a, a caveat, a disclaimer yeah. there on that may not yeah. be accurate. You know, <laughs> So, Rex, uh, I look forward to the next time we actually get to shake hands. Right? Me too, man. Me too. Not, ju not just not just bump elbows or something like that. But <laughs> I'm going to um, give you a big hug, dude. Yeah, I, I, I'll take That's it. That's what's up. I'll take it. So, um, travel safely. I, I really appreciate you being here tonight. And I tell you, um, I, I told you we weren't going to get into any you know, of those uh, off-topic subjects, and we didn't. We avoided right. sex, politics, drugs, rock and roll, all that stuff, right? So we could talk about rock and roll if you want. But. Yeah. So, all right. So, everybody that came in tonight, thank you for being here. I appreciate it. Uh, of course, this interview, uh, audio and video, will show up uh, tomorrow or the day after on YouTube and the uh, podcast platform, respectively. Uh, thank you, Rex, for being here. Thanks for all you're doing for the trumpet world. We, we really you, appreciate man. it. Thank you. This is this this whole thing you're doing is a wonderful service, and I hope people oh, thanks. support it, man. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. So, uh, Rex, hang on. I'm going to sign off here, and uh, give me just a second. All right, everybody. Mm -hmm. See you later. Thanks again.